Um, as we were singing that song, um, really several songs, man, the fountain, um, it's a song that God's really used to minister to me in my life here recently. I, I don't know the date of the fountain there, Corey, how old that may be, but um, man, it's really God's used it to minister to me. Um, and this morning I was reading Psalm 41 and, and I came across these words, verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. And this morning, just in some time alone with the Lord, I just asked Him just to remind me of my sin, of how He's forgiven me. And the Lord began just to replay things of my life and the things that Christ had died for me for. And um, as we sang the song there, the fountain, about the, the fact of the thief, and it says that I am just like that thief on the cross in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And then we would sing that His mercy is more. And uh, this morning, the Lord just began to remind me of many, many, many things that He has forgiven me of, and that mercy, that grace that is more. And so I praise the Lord for it. Uh, this morning, we're, we're going to cover a lot of text, okay? We're going to cover about eight chapters of Hosea. Um, and so it's going to be a lot. I, I know that. We're going to move at a rapid pace, so we won't maybe deal with some of the text maybe that you'd like us to. Um, but I'd love to talk with you more if you're interested. There's stuff you want to ask or discuss. Um, feel free. Um, Often on Sunday nights, we go deeper into the message here and talk about how do we apply, live it out in small groups. And, um, and so I encourage you to be a part of those um, so you have that opportunity on Sunday nights. But um, this morning, I want to talk to you about the destroyer of God's people. The destroyer of God's people. I want you to be aware of one of the things that God says destroys his people. It's verse 6 of Hosea 4, and you probably have heard it, even if you don't know the, the, the actual scripture reference. And it says that, that my people are destroyed for a lack of what? Lack of knowledge. Um, and so what I want to do today is I really want that verse to be the one that kind of helps frame how we understand and see Hosea 4 through 11. And although there, yes, the understanding may be that knowledge relates to the fact of, well, if we don't know these things, then how can we live them? That, that's absolutely true, right? We have to know God's Word to be able to live it. But in this context of what you're going to see is he's saying that knowledge is, in fact, the reality that they know the Word of God, and yet they're not obeying it. So the knowledge is that they really don't know God. Like, they profess to know God, but their lives don't know God. Like, their lips are saying one thing, their lives are saying something else. And so he says, listen, I want you to know that brings destruction on my people, for they are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You see the clip there, a little, the little sonar there on the screen? And um, it was December 7th, 1941. Anybody know that day? Does that ring a bell? What day was that? Pearl Harbor. Anybody here was alive when Pearl Harbor happened? Any, anybody here? Yeah. Does anybody remember hearing any of that? Anybody remember FDR getting on there and say, this is the date that will live in what? A date that will live in infamy. It's interesting, many of the things that are happening in the background of that, but one that I want to throw at you this morning to kind of set the stage of where we're headed was December 7th, 1941 at 7 a.m. December 7th, 1941. December 7th, 1941, at 7 a.m., approximately 55 minutes before the first plane will appear above Pearl Harbor, the Japanese first Japanese plane that will appear above. Private George Elliott Jr. and another soldier are monitoring the mobile radar there in Oahu. Suddenly, he later reports, it is the largest blip that they have ever seen come across the O-scope. Largest blip they'd ever seen. They call it in to the officer in command over them, and he simply responds, hey, listen, we ought to dismiss that. Why? He believes that it's a flight of B-17s that were coming in from San Francisco, and that's what they had seen. Fifty-five minutes later, 300-plus Japanese planes would fill the sky and begin to bomb 
on one of the greatest losses of life the Americans have ever known. And so there it was. My people are destroyed for a lack of what? Knowledge. It wasn't that they didn't have it. They didn't act on it. That's what I want you to see this morning. As we come to Hosea 4-11, through 11, there is clarity from God's Word. The people know the Word of God, and yet they are not acting and living in obedience. And he says, I want you to know that will bring destruction to my people. So join me if you would, beginning in verse 1 of Hosea 4. Here, look what he says here, the Word of the Lord. As we begin this morning, remember this is not the man words merely of a prophet. This is more than the words of any preacher. As great as Billy Graham was, as we honor his life and look to his legacy, praise God for him and, and many like him who have been so faithful to preach and teach and to go to the nations to take the gospel. But let's be reminded that this is more than just the words of a man. This is more than the words of a Sunday school teacher. This is word more than the words of a grandmother or grandfather that you have greatly revered and respected. This is the words of the one true living God. And so he says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And then he says this statement here. There is no knowledge of God in the land. And I think he's really going to expel, expel out what that means. He's going to show us here. So he brings this out. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds. And he says, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. The accusations are made. And then he follows further and he says, listen, there is, um, there's, there's, there's judgment. Come with me to verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention. Who? Who's he contending with here? The priest. Further, look what he says here. Verse 5 of Hosea 4. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. Here's the accusation that's being made. Here's the great trouble that the people of Israel have come to. It's not simply the people have gone astray. It's the people that are supposed to be leading them. The priests, the ones that are directing them in the law. The prophets, those that hear from God and say, here's God's word. Here's how we are to live and to honor him in these days. They are the ones leading astray the people of God. It's the preachers. Sunday school teachers. Others, evangelists, we might say of our day, that are leading the people astray. It's the priest. It's the prophets. It's God's, the ones that God has chosen and called to lead the people, to direct them toward Him. They are the very ones that are leading the people to another path. Look what he says to them further here. Verse 6. He says, my people are destroyed, again, for lack of knowledge. That's that kind of anthem I want you to capture today. Just that statement there. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because, look what he says here, you have rejected knowledge. It's not that you don't have it, priest and prophet. It's not that God's people didn't have the Mosaic law that was handed down from Moses and just direct, directing them and informing them of what they are to do. They were just saying, God, I don't want that. We want to do our own thing. And, and we're going to kind of maybe hear this refrain throughout. God, I want to do it my way. He says, and furthermore to them, listen to this. He calls, he says that you guys have forgotten the law of your God. And then he's going to bring judgment. Again, it's priest and prophet, guys. If we as a church step away from the word of God and do as we see fit, we shall soon find ourselves in the same place the people of Israel had. Just as if we ignore what we see on the O-scope or the radars 
or the telecommunications or the things that we're hearing, whether it be from North Korea or whatever, if we ignore those things, it will be to our own peril. That we might repeat the very events of December 7th, 1941. We don't want to do that again. There was so much miscommunication, so much lack of communication on those dates and dates leading up to that. And people are saying, how do we miss all of that? And my question to you and I is, as the church, if we are also not in danger of also rejecting God's word, that we might follow in the very footsteps of the people of Israel. And God, listen, back to the prophets of Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He says, I've given you guys my spirit that you would not go astray. The spirit of God in you is if you are a believer this morning and you are living outside of God's will or, or you and I have a moment in which we step away from God's will. There's a rebuke. There's a conviction from the spirit that says that doesn't reflect it. Now, listen, a lot of that reflection or a lot of that conviction comes in light of the fact that we spent time with God and his word. Right. The spirit calls up verses. The spirit calls up things you heard in Sunday school. 50, 60 years ago. The Spirit calls up sermons you heard from Adrian Rogers 20 years ago on the radio. I mean, the Spirit can do all these amazing things that He brings. But the more of God's Word we have in here, the more the Spirit begins to bring that Word alive. It's, it's this interaction that's at play. The people are going to be punished. He says here in verse 9 and 10. And then let's come further with me. Look to verse 11. He says, listen... Again, maybe the because back in verse 10 kind of gives clarity of what's going to happen. He says to you guys, because you guys have forsaken the Lord and you've cherished toward him wine and new wine, which takes away the understanding. So look, he's using of something of a physical imagery, right? Wine, new wine. How does whoredom work into that? Well, the fact is, Romans 1 says that when we delight in the things that are other than God, it says that God at some point there in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them what, you know, gave them over. I mean, maybe one of the scariest anthems we have in all of Scripture of God just allowing people to go their own way. God gave them over, he said. He says, listen, just like the wine, just like the new wine takes away the understanding, the inebriation comes in, the thoughts are not as clear. He says, I want you to know that these things, as you walk away from me, you begin to not see God's word as clearly. That sin doesn't become as big a deal. That worshiping God is not really as major as maybe you once believed. He says, listen, guys, I want you to know there's a work, even a spirit of whoredom. There's the work of the evil one that's leading you guys astray. You guys have left your God. And look, he says to them. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. Whoa. Four. And this is a major statement that gives a lot of clarity of what's happening. So I want us to just spend a few moments here. He said the men are actually going aside with prostitutes. And with cult prostitutes. Here's what's happening. The people of Israel are still worshiping God. Okay, now they've broken away from many of the things that God had instructed. In fact, the northern kingdom had set up there in Dan and there, I believe it's in Beersheba. They had set up their own places to worship. They had set up these old, their own false gods, these idols. Right, they had left the, the Jerusalem temple. And so many things are getting left astray at this point. But the people now are not only it's like it's this. Maybe we'll understand our own current context. They go to church on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday they're doing all kinds of other things. It's not that they're not going to church. It's not that they're not doing some of these things that they were called to do. It's just they're doing many other things as well. And he says, listen, the men are going into these false temples, right? To these temples of Baal or whoever, this God of fertility, this God of the weather, right? Who couldn't prosper their land. And so they would go in and make the sacrifices of these false gods. And then there would be prostitutes there. And they would initiate this relationship with them. 
First Kings 14 tells us that there were even for those that didn't desire women, there were homosexual prostitutes inside the cult. And they would engage in this in First, First Kings chapter 14. And in the midst of this, you say, well, why would they do these things? Because they believe that their coming together would create some kind of syncretistic magic that would cause now this God up there to see this false God. And they would rain down, literally rain on the earth, fertilizing the land and the land will be prosperous. And that's exactly what they've seen. The people of Israel have started to experience a great prosperity. The land was prospering, and so they assume, you know what, guys, this must be working out pretty good. We can have God and have our cake and what? Eat it too. They assume that things must be okay, that it's really not that big a deal, that we can just kind of live any way we want. The men are leading the stray, the priests, the prophets, I mean, the ones that God has called to lead. They're the ones that are leading everyone else astray in this. He says, listen, guys, you don't know that you are missing it. They think they've hit the spiritual jackpot. A little bit of God, a little bit of this. Bring it all kind of together, roll it around, throw it down the table. Baby, it's all sevens. It's rolling great. And then this anthem again, verse 14, he ends with it. But a people without understanding shall what? Shall come to ruin. He says, listen, guys, don't be deceived. Chapter 5 tells them that there's judgment coming, verse 1. He tells them further, it's going to be for all people in verse 2. Verse 3 tells them, listen, guys, some of you think that it's hidden from me, but actually it's not. And then he tells them this scary thing that maybe we would think of with that, again, that Romans 1 terminology that God gave them over. It says their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. If you've ever thought your sin's not that big a deal, you can just keep living it up any way you want. Be careful lest God let you go your own way. Again, he issues the fact that the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. Do you see it? Their lives know Him not. They don't know Him. Well, the text, again, there's many things we could cover, but listen to what he says here in verse 15 of Hosea 5. He says, I will again, I will return again to my place until God is waiting, until, he says, they acknowledge their guilt. There's a confession of sin. And seeking Him, earnestly seeking the Lord in their distress. Despite everything they've done, God's still awaiting His people to repent. That's His mercy is more. I mean, you're just saying it, but that, that, that's you singing these words and now saying, but I wonder what that actually looks like. Like, I wonder if that's true for somebody like me, Blake. I'll tell you this morning, it was a reminder to me as God just began to replay the sins in my life, many, 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 many things. And I began to just bow my head, and yet in there, in that midst of that, His mercy is more. I began to see the beauty of Christ's sacrifice, that He would die for a scoundrel like me, scum of the earth. A man that knew God's Word and, and chose to walk his own way to say, I don't want that right now, I'd rather have the things of the world. And yet God said, listen, Blake, my love is so great. My lavishing of mercy is so deep that I'm not giving up on you. My son paid the penalty. And all I could just sit there and just say, God, praise, hallelujah to your name. Praise you, Lord. Man, His grace, His mercy is more. So watch this. Despite everything you've seen and heard, God's not finished with His people. Listen to this. Listen to this love. Hosea chapter 6. Come. Let us return to the Lord. It's a reminder of Isaiah chapter 1, right? Come now, let us reason together. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though as red as crimson, they shall be white like wool. God invites His people, despite all of their sin and failure, He says, come, return. Right? Isn't it beautiful here? Let us. Hosea jumps in. He says, guys, I'm guilty just like you. Listen, we've all got poo under our shoe. There's none of us here that are not guilty. We are all guilty. Come, he says, let us return to the Lord. Why? Look what he says here. Watch this. For he has torn us that. Why would God tore us? Why would he tear us? That he might heal us. He struck us down that he would bind us up. God's judgment is not merely punitive. It is redemptive. It's not just him just discarding you and saying, I'm done with you. God is tearing his people that he could heal them. God is permitting. He's going to permit judgment. But the desire of the judgment is that his people would return to the Lord. It's that they would put aside their, their ill ways, their ill-gotten ways, the ways that, that they don't acknowledge His Word, and they would return to the Lord. And you say, why would they ever do that? Because this God is merciful and gracious, and He welcomes His children back. There's no one like that. In fact, how much does He welcome you back? He allowed His Son to die for all of that stuff that you and I did over here. That's a God who ushers us to return. That's a God who I can come and worship and say, Lord, you know me full well. I'm a scoundrel, but you love me so much that you would send your son for me. Further, he tells us, verse 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Why, God? That what? We may live before him. The New Testament writers will grab this verse and they will point it straight to Jesus. Right? He was buried on Friday. He was still in the tomb on Saturday. But on Sunday morning, the third day, by the power of God, what happened? Jesus Christ was raised victorious over sin and death. I was reminded of that yesterday morning early. Brother Todd had gone Friday afternoon. And I had gone yesterday morning to visit one of our oldest members who is in her final hours, moments. And as I stood beside her bedside, unable to communicate, I realized in that moment I had nothing to offer her physically. Money wouldn't help. A milkshake's not going to fix it. Nothing I could do. The only thing that I could offer her in that moment was Jesus, only Jesus. To encourage her to eternal life and she, I don't know what she could hear or not hear, but in those moments, man, I just began, we just echoing out the anthem, singing Amazing Grace, sharing the Word of God, the good news, the kingdom that is coming by faith, that we will no longer be sick, there will be no more sick beds, there will be no more need of oxygen, there will be no more death there, there will be no more tears there, this place that we're coming. And then when I walked out of that hospital room, God said, Blake, if you give the people tomorrow morning anything else, that will be spiritual malpractice. If you give the people tomorrow morning anything else than what you gave her and don't realize that we're all in that same condition, we are all but a breath away from death, eternity. He said, if you give them anything else tomorrow, then my son, you will be guilty, my son, of spiritual malpractice. So, brothers and sisters, there is a resurrection coming. 
The Scriptures warn us it's not only a resurrection unto life, but for those who reject Christ, there's a resurrection unto eternal death. Come, look to the Son. The Lord tells them in verse 6, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Again, we have this repeat of the knowledge of God. Again, He wants them. This, this is not just knowing facts. He wants the people to know Him. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And here's what happens. The people believe they actually have that. Look what it says. Skip with me chapter 8, verse 2. To me they cry, my God. Look what it says. They got the right anthem down. My God. We, Israel, what? We know you. God, we, we know you. You're our God. We show up at church. God, we give money in the offering. God, I mean, God, I preach sermons. God, I drive the bus. God, I help with the kids. God, we know you. And look what he says about their lives. Look at all these things around them. Guys, he says, verse 1, you've actually transgressed my covenant. You're the ones that are rebelling against my law. You claim to know me, but you've spurned the good. You've made kings, but it was not by my choice. You've done princes in the same things. You've made your idols. You've multiplied altars for sinning. And he will come to verse 13 and says, you have forgotten your maker. They're claiming to know him. Guys, they got the right answers. But their lives are not reflecting it. Again, I want to usher you back to Jesus and the cross because it's the only thing that will transform a life. Not more moral laws. Not like i got to be a better person. No, the Spirit of God in you. That's what Galatians 5, we finished with last week. Galatians 5 says, because we are in Christ, we have crucified. That doesn't mean we become perfect, but the Spirit begins to convict us that our lives do not reflect the Gospel. And God brings us to conviction to a place of repentance, the Bible calls, of turning from our ways and looking to God. We're going to kind of pick up the pace a little bit, but he's going to throw four similes at them. He's going to use four examples of things that kind of illustrate who Israel truly is. In verse 10 of Hosea chapter 9, he says that they are like grapes in the wilderness. I found Israel. He's saying God says he's pretending as if he was some man that was walking through this desert land. There was nothing there. All of a sudden he happened upon grapes. And he's like... Whoa, how awesome is this? He says, listen, that's how you got started. That's how your fathers were. And he's looking back to Abraham and the faithful. He says, but then I came to this bad moment of Bel Peor when they just totally went after other gods. And he says, you guys consecrated yourselves to the things of shame. You became detestable. He says, listen, guys, you started out good, but you walked away from me because you would not listen. It says James chapter 1, verse 22. When he tells us, be doers of the word and not what? Not hearers only. Why? He doesn't finish there in verse 22. He says, the reason why you are to be doers of the word and not hearers only, says, because so deceiving yourselves. He says it's deception. If you are simply someone who hears about God but doesn't live it out. He says, you are deceiving your own soul. Here it is with the people of Israel. It appears good. They started out well, but they're not living it out. They're not being the doers of the word. They are deceiving themselves. Look further with me, if you would. Hosea chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine. That's how the ESV renders it, the New American Standard. Um, NIV, 85, NIV 84 is going to say that you are a spreading vine. Uh, the King James, um, if you're, you're packing a King James this morning, it's going to say that um, you are an empty vine. What you're catching from those different translations is that there's some, some 
maybe some ambiguity to the fact that things aren't exactly clear from what's, what's being illustrated about Israel? Is it good? Is it bad? What's God trying to say? I think it could be both. I think that's maybe why we have some of the question. Maybe it's kind of this double entendre, like two different things. He's meaning saying one thing, but meaning two. He says, listen, you guys are an, a luxuriant vine. You are a spreading vine. Like a vine starts out well, but if you're not careful, man, they can take over everything else. And look what happens. Why? Look what he says here. The more his fruit increased, right? So the land prospered, the more altars he built. The country improved. Things got better economically. Taxes was going up. Things were doing well. Things were moving. Look what it says he did. He improved his pillars. Why? Because they assumed that the other God, Baal, was the one that was doing it. And so he says, listen, you guys saw all this stuff and thought everything was going great in your life. And so you just kept running after sacrificing more and more to this God. He says, you were confused. Your vine was spreading out, but you were looking and, and seeking after the wrong things. Jump with me maybe to verse 6 here in Hosea chapter 10 about this luxuriant vine. He says, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria. They had made this idol, these idols to these false gods, as tribute to the great king. He says, Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idols. He says, the very thing that you loved and sought after, it's going to be carried away. And I don't know about you, those are hard moments when things that you've maybe built your life around other than God, other things about your kingdom, and that kingdom falls. But really and truly, let's be honest, that's really a moment of God's grace and mercy that He allows our kingdom to fall. Because it reminds us that kingdom is really not a kingdom at all. I better get my two feet back over here really quickly. Those are hard moments when things like that happen, but they're moments in which God begins to reveal in my life that I was really about money. I was really a lot about pride. And I'm not saying I still don't struggle with those two things. Those are some vices that are always on the inside internally. I'm warring against trying to put that to death within my own life. He says again, this other illustration of them further in chapter 10, he says, Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh and I spared her fair neck. He says, listen, guys, the field that you guys were threshing, that was obedience to my commands. The yoke that I put upon you was to be obedient to me, to follow me. And now, obviously, when Jesus shows up on the scene, they've added all kinds of things other to that, right? All these other rules and all these things you have to do to be accepted before God. And that's why Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my what? Yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. He says, you've got all these other yokes that aren't mine. Come take my yoke. Why? Because I'll obey the law fully and completely on your behalf. And you just walk in my grace and the power of my spirit, obeying me through the redemptive work of the cross. Listen to what he says about them, though, verse 13. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Why has all this happened to them? Look at this statement right here. Because you have trusted in what? Your own way. It was the 1969 classic that um, stayed on the Billboard hits, maybe as long or maybe longer than any other song. I'm not exactly sure on that. But it stayed there for a long, long time in 1969. Some of you probably know it. Many of you probably do. It's one of the most famous musicians we've ever known. The name Frank Sinatra, right? Does anybody know the song that may have stayed there in 1969? My Way. My Way. Right? That's, that's exactly what he said to them. You've trusted in your own way. Sinatra's daughter commented on the fact, said that her dad began to no longer like the song because it defined it as self-serving and self-indulgent. However, much of Sinatra's own life biography 
reveals the life of my way. The Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12, warn us of the danger of living my way. There's a way that seems right to a man or a woman. But in the end, it leads where? To death. There's a way that seems right to a man or woman, but its end is the way of death. Be careful. The my way life. And in this moment of Hosea chapter 11 shows up again. As if you would hear all of this and you would assume that God's done with His people. I mean, they have just rebelled. They've walked away. They've spurned Him again and again and again. They've gone after all these other gods. They've assumed all these other gods are the ones that have answered and blessed them and caused them to prosper. And God shows up on the scene. And this loving Father is just going to show His love. And it's, this is overwhelming. I pray it's an overwhelming thing to your soul. This is where we're going to leave today. Hosea chapter 11. I pray it's overwhelming your soul as we close. Listen to what he says here. Um, when Israel was a child, so again, he uses this last simile here, this being a child. Listen to what God says about them. I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing, he says, to the bells, the burnt offerings, the idols. Yet, God's not finished. It was I. He, he, he taught them. He taught them to walk. He took them up by their arms. He did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to feed them. It's a father who's taking care of his toddler. And they don't see it. Do you see it? James says that every good and perfect gift comes from who? From God above. Everything that is good in your life comes from God. Don't be deceived. It's Him. He is there loving His people, loving and comforting and being kind to them. Verses 5 through 7, more judgment comes because they just keep rebelling. And look what he says in verse 6. He says, listen, God, the sword is going to come. Assyria, the, the kingdom of Assyria is coming against His people. He says, why? He says, man, my people are bent on turning away from me. They just can't get enough of going the other way. They call out the Most High. She does not raise them up. And then this moment of this Father. I mean, this is a moment in which God just reveals His heart. Sometimes we think this God is just like impersonal. This is a moment of God being, this is Luke 15. This is that prodigal father sitting there waiting for his child, waiting for you to return. Listen to him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God says, you are my people. You are my beloved. I can't give you up. I, I can't as much as you deserve it. Brother Corey, my mercy is more. That is the God whom I invite you to come and bow your knee and your life. That is the God that is worthy of turning from your way to his way. It is a God that despite all that I have done and despite all that you have done, still loves you and I so much that He would send His only begotten Son that whoever would believe on His Son should not what? Perish, but have what? Everlasting life. By belief, faith, trust in the Son. Not by good works. Not by turning your life around enough. It is by putting your faith and trust in Him because He alone satisfies God for you.
That's the God that I appeal to you today, brothers and sisters. It was the, that's the God that I appealed to a grandmother here in the last week. We were talking about her grandchildren. She said, Blake, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about some of them. Some of them have not made decisions. They're old. Blake, I know they know. What should I do? And I looked her in the eye and I said, if you don't tell them, who will? If you don't have these hard conversations with your grandbabies, grandparents, who's going to? Church, if you don't go back to that job site and warn your, your co-worker, your buddy, your friend, who is going to? There's a God that they deserve to hear and know about. They may reject Him, but you, by your life and with your lips, invite them to come to the cross, to Christ to a God who desires not to give us up. A God who in 2 Peter 3 and 9 says, our musicians make their way. God is patient. 2 Peter 3 9. God is patient, not wanting anyone to what? Perish, but all to what? Come to repentance. God has given you another day. Paul would pick up on that in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 and say, today is the day of salvation. Now is what? Now is the appointed time. It's here and now. There is a God who loves you, who has forgiven you of everything, who is willing to accept you. Will you come and bow your life, turn from my way living, and come to this God who has not given up on you? A God who sent His Son to take every bit of your sin and shame that you could be accepted before Him. That you could leave no longer condemned. That you could walk with a yoke no longer identified by your past, but identified by what the Son of God has done on your behalf. I invite you to the one true living God. And the only way to come to the Father is through who? Through the Son. Through the Son. Would you guys stand and sing with us this morning? Man, I want to invite you again. As they sing, please, right? I, I've used the illustration before, but man, just my spirit this morning. I sense that third base coach. You rounded second. The ball's in the outfield. You're not sure what to do. I'm compelling you based upon the gospel this morning, the good news of Jesus Christ, that you would see that third base coach saying, come on home. He's got the, I mean, he's got the wheel rolling. Come on. It's you this morning. Respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spur it not. Come home this morning. Please, I beg it of you. Reject not his offer of mercy and grace. Please, church. No one's too dirty. That's the people of Israel, and they were not too far gone. God still loved them and welcomed them home. Would you come today? You. I'm inviting you this morning. Please, the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed unto you.
Yeah. 